The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Let's get to our guest. We have Alexis Crow with us. She is partner and global head of geopolitical investing practice at PwC. She joins us uh, from our studio in Tokyo. Alexis, thanks for being with us. So much to unpack, and I'm glad we have you here to kind of look back at what we uh, saw come out of the party congress in China. One of the questions that we've been asking with this kind of tighter control that President Xi has over the uh, Politburo now and um, by extension, the government in China, whether things have become a little bit more risky insofar as investing on the mainland is concerned. Sure. Thanks so much for having me, Doug. So certainly we've seen uh, investors and market participants really reprice risk of their position in China uh, in digesting the events of the Congress. And, you know, what we've certainly seen with the new appointments uh, and the new reshuffle Um, perhaps now an absence of the checks and balances on the ability to implement reforms uh, vis-a-vis President Xi. So, you know, my key takeaway coming out of the Party Congress is that safety is the number one KPI for Beijing now, and that investors are are sort of repricing this vis-a-vis growth. And does this also mean, because so many... uh people we've been speaking to say, oh, China's a great place for Chinese people to invest. But for foreign investors, probably not, uh, because the, 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 the balance has shifted so much now. Certainly. I mean, I think if we look at just purely objective growth terms, you know, we've had some severe shocks to the economy going back to fall of 2021 uh, with the energy crunch and power outages. Um, You know, some of the lagging structural effects of of the lockdowns, be it from Wuhan or be it from Shanghai. Uh, Then, of course, the property sector. So we are seeing companies and investors from a global landscape look to other markets for growth in a very unemotional uh, circumstance. And then I think now in the wake of the Congress, that's really driven that home where um, by and large, many executives have digested this as saying we are now you know, the focus on safety means we have to look for growth elsewhere. I'd like to get your take on the move by the Biden administration to lean very heavily into Beijing's ability to advance some of the most sophisticated technology that's out there, supercomputing, artificial intelligence. We know now that Washington is moving to limit the use it has of certain types of semiconductor technology, uh, chip manufacturing. What does that mean for the outlook as far as you see it when you look at China? Thanks so much, Doug. You know, we've talked over the years about this technological decoupling between the U.S. and China, and we forecasted that with an incoming Biden administration that that would not change at all. And it had hitherto been relegated to hard tech uh, in terms of pipes and masks, 5G, uh, some software uh, with Chinese state entities, water cascading out some U.S. software. But now the chip focus, of course, is is forcing a question for manufacturers and investors across the globe 
about the advent of two technological trading systems and ecosystems. And so, you know, we saw in the in the last plenum, we saw you know the focus on uh, Chinese innovation and driving a lot of R&D into that high-end Intel-compatible semicon chip. Um, and now I think, you know, China will be in a serious conundrum as to how it's going to innovate domestically. We've also seen notably some Dutch companies say that, okay, well, you know, we're, we can still export from the Eurozone. So I think some Eurozone players will think we might be able to skirt these export controls. Well, you know, um, China, Taiwan, People always say, well, the Chinese have this long time span. They can look way down the road and eventually get Taiwan back. But doesn't uh, Taiwan produce a very large percent of certain kinds of chips that China needs badly in the spheres they want to advance in? Does this increase the, the bellicosity of, of China now saying, hey, this isn't just about getting it back. It's history. This is about this is something we need badly and we're going to go for it. Thanks, Kathleen. So certainly I would say that you know, Taiwan, there's no question about it. It is the world's foundry uh, for, for Semicon. And we've seen that with Japanese courting of, of uh, you know, Taiwanese companies and German courting of Taiwanese companies. Um, you know, we're seeing that with this return of what I would say is industrial policy or post-industrial policy. Um, but really, I, I would say that um, I'm more concerned about the U.S. provoking China here. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the COVID zero policy. One of the things that China has kind of created for itself in in not making um, itself available to certain types of remedies, and I'm thinking about the mRNA vaccines that have come out of the West, it's not allowed any of that to penetrate. Yes, there have been some uh, Western antiviral meds that have been allowed in for those folks who have been infected with the virus. How much of this is self-inflicted, and is it kind of a... a a situation where nationalism has has uh, kind of swelled to the point where it's inflicted somewhat um, the kind of harm that's almost disproportional to any kind of nationalistic feeling that you would think would support the economy. Thanks, Doug. I mean, it's also kind of concerning from an investing standpoint when you think that some of the largest stewards of capital in the globe are sitting within mainland China. They need to get returns and they need to look outside of China to invest. And so the curtailments on mobility are even concerning from that return standpoint. With regard to the, the ensuing policy, you know, I would say that it, it seems very much a, a paternalistic stance. So you mentioned nationalism. I think more of the sort of Confucian definition of of, of concentric rings and circles with regard to protecting the innermost nucleus of a family. And that seems very much the stance. Um, and so where we go from here, I know certainly many executives are, are, are looking forward to when some of these restrictions are relaxed to be able to come back in and do business in China. What does this mean for Hong Kong? Um, you know, I, I would say that historically we've had two gateway cities uh, from Asia to the West, and now I would say there's probably one, which is Singapore. Okay, uh, in the time that we have left, which is a, uh, about 60 seconds, I'd like you get your take on Japan. You're there in Tokyo. Give me your sense of uh, how well the economy is performing and the challenges facing the BOJ. Sure, Doug. Well, you know, it's interesting when we look at some of the real-time indicators, retail sales are extraordinarily robust, and I can certainly sense it when I'm walking in the streets in Tokyo. Um, and, you know, the numbers continuing to surprise to the upside, despite the fact that we know that the Japanese consumer is extraordinarily price sensitive. You're still looking at a core inflation rate of less than half of what it is in the U.S., hovering around 3% here. 
Um, of course, you're dealing with some imported inflation uh, with with the Fed height, uh, Fed hiking cycle, um, and we're watching the BOJ intervene. So I would say that you know Kishida Sun's government um, is looking at supporting this through fiscal measures and supporting uh, tourism and courting foreign tourists to be able to capitalize on a weaker yen. So I think the government and the BOJ BOJ working together is quite a strong combination. Alexis, good stuff. Thank you so much for being with us. Alexis Crow is partner, global head of geopolitical investing practice at PwC, joining us here on Daybreak Asia. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.